Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Sea Glass Blue by Mel Forbes on AO3. Rating General Audiences. Chapter 14. Outside, the sun is bright enough that the day looks like summer, but goosebumps raise on her bare skin. The day crisp, still spring. Legs crossed. She sits on the deck and leans back on her palms, chin tipped up, eyes closed, soaking in the light. She's naked, save for the cross around her neck, and the sea breeze lifts her red hair. Scully, his Scully, and she told him that dermatologists ask you to take off your clothes and show all of your skin that has seen the sun, and at this point, she's done being modest. She wants every part of her body to see the sun. And he's got his disposable camera. When he asked if he could take her picture, shockingly she said yes. And now, he finds her sideways to him, figure in the little plastic frame, tries to remember where a grid would place her, tries to show both the fir trees around them and the ocean in the background. He's afraid that if he takes too long, she'll back out. He's afraid that once he finally clicks the shutter, she'll disappear, and he'll be left alone on the deck, sitting on splintering boards, bare legs out in the sun. But he clicks the button anyway, holds the camera down towards his lap, winds the little wheel to the next shot. When he goes to frame her again, she's looking over her shoulder, staring straight at him. But no, she's not staring at him. She's staring at the camera in his hands. She's posing. For once, she wants her picture taken, and she's posing. The first thing he'll do once he returns home is send the camera off to be developed. He wants these pictures. He wants to remember how he halfway spun the wheel before she took the camera from his hands, set it down on the splintering deck, and held his face as she kissed him. He wants to remember her pushing him down, the wood aching against his back, and took him there, the waves crashing loud in the distance, the scent of pine and her perfume, naked bodies together, summer in the sky, but spring on their skin. He'll keep these pictures safe. He'll clean out a part of his chest, then slip these pictures inside, keep them safe between his heart and lungs. For these are the pictures only the two of them will know exist, and she won't exist much longer. Though he's powerless in so many ways, he'll do what he can to keep her safe. She touches him, as if she loves him, and he's starting to believe her. Over breakfast, at two in the afternoon, she mentions the lighthouse they went to on one of their first days in Maine, all the fog betraying their view. It's a nice day out, so maybe they should go back, and he puts on a t-shirt and jeans, the day warm enough that he hesitates before deciding to take his jacket. She's wearing another floral dress, a different one from last night, seafoam color linen, and he wonders if their return to the city will be marked by new clothes, different clothes, things pushed to the back of their closets. He's starting to forget what she looks like in a suit. The lighthouse keeper recognizes them, offers to let them look around again. The view's much better today. You can see for miles. Here, the beaches are full of rocks, all smoothed down by the tides. The seaweed lines the shores. Little bobbing buoys over dark waters, firs on far banks swaying in the breeze. And a lighthouse, a red and white lighthouse, like ones on postcards. They stand on the top deck and look out at the world around them. His eyes are too old, too haggard to see the fine details, but he watches how she grips the railings. Short nails, hands that have touched his bare skin, his bare shoulders pulling him towards her, leaving fingerprints on his back. She has freckles on her stomach and a birthmark on her inner thigh and a tattoo he'll someday learn to love on her back. 
alongside him. She is whole. Her hair pulled back. No need for a sweater today, though he hasn't even seen every part of her yet. He's seen enough to know that she's it for him. His end-all person. Someone who keeps him in orbit. This morning, he's kissed her in bed, as if he's done so a thousand times already. The tide's coming in, and they're going to be okay. I already have an advance directive, she says, voice muffled by the ocean below. But when we get home, I need to make a new one. She wants to talk about dying. She wants to talk about preparing for her death. Though he wishes he could thrust his head into the sand, these beaches are filled with rocks. Hiding from reality be more painful than facing reality directly. Okay, he says, for he barely knows what an advanced directive is. I would like you to make my end-of-life decisions, should I be unable to make them myself, she says, looking out at the water, not looking at him. I'll be specific about what I want in the legal documents. You won't have to make challenging decisions. No, he will end up making challenging decisions, regardless of how specific she makes her instructions. If he has any say in her end-of-life care, then he has to make challenging decisions. He doesn't care if she's the one who says she doesn't want machines to keep her alive. He'll still feel as if his legal control is actively killing her. I don't want to wake, she says, and I don't want a funeral either, but I couldn't convince my mom to agree to that. So a funeral. And though she and I wrote together that I'd be embalmed, I don't think that's something I want anymore. Does her medical detachment make conversations like this one easier or harder? She's seen a trocar in action plenty of times has cut open embalmed corpses in front of him. If the strange, pervasive violence scares her, why did she ever think of being embalmed in the first place? My father was cremated, she said, looking down. He could have been buried in Arlington, but he wanted to be cremated and have his ashes released into the sea. Back then, I didn't understand why he would forego an honorable burial, but I think I'm starting to understand. Does her father have a grave? He feels his heart pound. If he doesn't have a place to go visit her once she's gone, he's not sure what he'll do. Where will he go instead? Or maybe he'll become one of those crazy men who create shrines in his basement, hair pulled from her brush left on an altar, worshipping her because he doesn't know what else to do. As morbid as it sounds, he wants her to have a headstone, a marker of something. He wants to be able to go somewhere and know she's there with him, even if only in spirit. We can look into cremation together, she says, looking at him and nodding. And for a moment, he thinks that means she wants them both loaded into the machine at the same time. But no, she'd rather plan for her death with his help, not with him included. And I want my ashes to go somewhere. I haven't thought of that yet, or really, I don't think I'll even know. But somewhere beautiful, somewhere like here. She turns back towards the sea and maybe this will be a proper final resting place. His Pisces woman, brought back to the sea. She'll become the dust they're all destined to return to, and he'll take that dust and walk out into the ocean with it, chest deep in the water, letting the last of her go into the waves. Then he'll duck beneath the water, hold his breath for a few moments, and imagine that she is there, embracing him, telling him that she misses him, then saying she has to go now, if that's all right, and he'll let her go. He'll let her return to wherever she went, and he'll miss her, but he'll still let her go. And maybe you could keep part of me, she says, cheeks warm, looking embarrassed. Keep me in a little box on your shelf.
Yes, he'll find a box, a perfect box, something suited for her, and he'll show that box to her before she dies. This is where you'll stay in my home until the day I die. This is something I'll talk to when the world feels like too much, and because I know you so well, I'll be able to mentally fill in your responses, and I'll tell you something about my day, something I think you'll like, and then I'll open my eyes, and you'll be standing in front of me and laughing, and you'll say, that's enough for one day, and point to the couch and ask what tape I have from Blockbuster, and I'll sit down and watch some movie that's a waste of my time, and I'll be alone, but not lonely, for you'll be on my shelf telling me that, wherever you are, you're waiting for me, not waiting impatiently, but instead pleasantly waiting, telling those around you about me, about our haphazard Catholic wedding and trips across the country together, and they'll say yes, they can see the trails, remnants of two people left around the continental United States, lines darting from place to place, our history together in jagged lines that straighten along interstate highways. I have loved you most on highways, blank spaces between one place and another, and you're in my passenger seat, reading a map that makes you look so small, and there's 200 miles until our exit, and nothing good is playing on the radio. You kick your feet up, talk about the weather. Ask if I caught the game last night. Your brother did. He said he was disappointed. But your brother is disappointed about everything. We stop for lunch at a diner, and I order a milkshake just to appease the happy-go-lucky waitress, and you end up drinking half of it. You talk about going on a diet, and I tell you that's stupid, and I don't think we take memories with us when we die. But I think I'll always remember where we've been together. Millions, maybe billions of cells. You know I am not a science person, and stardust and energy cannot be created or destroyed. When we die, we must go somewhere, if not for religious reasons and for scientific ones. When you die, you will go somewhere, and magnetic poles bring opposites together, and I think I'll be able to find you. No, I'll probably get lost. But you'll be able to find me. I don't know what heaven is, and I don't know what it means to die. But when I die, I think I'll reach out for you, and you'll reach back. And maybe we won't remember who we were or where we've been, but we'll have those highway lines. We'll always have those highway lines. She nudges up against him, pulling him from his thoughts, wrapping an arm around her. He leans down, kisses her forehead, then looks back out at the horizon. The rocks on the beaches, pines in the distance, buoys bobbing over waves. When she dies, this is where she'll end up. He doesn't need religion or science to tell him that. I really just want you there when it happens, she says. The details don't matter. I just want you there. I'll be there, he promises. And he means it. He'll be there. He'll be there the whole time. And then we'll stay long afterward. The room empty except the two of them. One soul and two bodies. I promise that I'll be there. She nods against him, and he pulls her in closer, both of his arms coming around her. At first, holding her had felt like holding something, but now, holding her feels like coming home. Around them, the waves, the pines, the breezes all start to fade away, and there are two people alone in this world, no ground beneath them, no sky, just two lone bodies, the only people on earth, and she'll leave him soon enough, even though she doesn't want to. And he needs to find a way to live with that. He needs to find a way to keep going. Not to honor himself, but to honor her. All things considered, he's not worth shit. But she's the only person in the world, as far as he's concerned. She is a person who defies language. Meeting her, he started to understand why artists spend their whole lives trying to create the perfect novel. 
perfect brushstroke, perfect expression to depict what love was. For when he thought of her, he couldn't find a way to describe her that felt adequate. No, she's more than words can say. His scully, and if she can love him, even though he is worth nothing, then he owes her his life. He owes her that he gets up every morning, goes to work even though he feels as if the world became empty. He owes her his life. And he'll cope with a funeral. He'll stand and speak, should she ask him to. And he'll take home her ashes, some in a jar, some in a special box. She helped him choose. And the little box will live on his shelf while he saves the jar for his next set of vacation days. Then he'll release her into the wild, letting her ashes go on a beach. And he'll imagine her running into the waves, then looking over her shoulder, asking if he'll come and join her. And he'll tell her, no, not yet, not yet. But someday, someday they'll find each other again. He knows they will. For the alternative is too upsetting to be real. Sure, it's pretty out here, she says, pulling away from him, bringing her hands back to the railing. It is, he says. They stay for a while. There's nowhere else they need to be. If you like this story and would like to contribute... You can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there. <laughs>